Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm Richard Howard, the Global Research Director at Aurora Energy Research. On this episode, we'll be looking at the decarbonisation of homes and buildings. And we'll have a particular focus on the UK, but also look at lessons from other countries as well. This is an area where the UK has made far less progress um, than we have seen in uh, decarbonising power systems, with homes and buildings still accounting for more than one-fifth of total emissions. And there's quite a number of um, different challenges and barriers that really hold us back there. So, for example, whereas in the power sector, we can make significant progress at scale by phasing out coal, building large scale wind and solar parks. And the decarbonisation of homes and buildings is is much more challenging. It requires millions of smaller investments. It requires action at the individual and household scale and often involves a lot of upfront cost and disruption to the home, which can be difficult for households to bear. And so we've made, frankly, less progress in this space than we should have done. And despite a kind of alphabet soup of different government interventions and schemes over the years, the reality is that still nearly 90%, so some 88% of homes in the UK are still uh, using either gas or even oil boilers um, and are still um, pretty inefficient. They're some of the draftiest homes um, in Europe. And whereas, so some other countries vary in their starting point, but we still see across um, many European countries some of the same challenges popping up again and again uh, about how governments, regulators, and industry can ta- uh, tackle some of these challenges. I'm joined by two experts today to discuss um, these issues. And so, firstly, I'm joined by Emma Fletcher, who's the Low Carbon Homes Director at Octopus Energy. She started her career in the real estate industry, uh, working um, her way up over time to become the managing director of a major house builder and development company. Um, And alongside that, set up a community land trust, which was implementing low carbon solutions at domestic and kind of settlement scale, Uh, but has now moved to Octopus. And she's at the forefront of developing customer propositions to decarbonize homes and buildings. So Emma, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Also joining me on this episode is Caroline Still, a senior associate in Aurora's UK and Ireland advisory team based in Oxford. Caroline has led a set of projects for the National Infrastructure Commission in the UK, focusing on the decarbonisation of heat and buildings, particularly looking at the system challenges around decarbonisation of heat. These reports have just been released publicly and form part of the evidence base for the National Infrastructure Assessment. So she's uniquely placed to be discussing some of these issues today. Welcome, Caroline. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Richard, and looking forward to discussing it, Emma. Brilliant. So, Emma, I might start and bring you in first. Um, I mentioned in the preamble that you were previously working in the real estate industry and delivering homes as as well as low-carbon solutions. So I wonder if we can explore that a bit first. I wonder, what's your experience from working in that industry of the general level of awareness and and, and really the priority of decarbonisation and of homes? I think sometimes um, 
the public in particular don't realise how long it takes to actually get developments out of the ground. You could be working on projects for like up to 10 years. So when you're trying to secure land and secure the price for land, and it's nearly always competitive, you're taking a little bit of a, a look to the future as to where you think uh, regulation is going to be. But but effectively, you're doing a little bit of crystal ball gazing as well. And then you roll the clock forward and local plans change or building regulations change. And all those additional costs need to be absorbed into the land that you've already actually purchased or, or agreed to buy subject to planning. So the lead in times are huge. And therefore, it's really difficult to sort of see where you've got to get to. That being said, we've got an industry dominated by PLC builders who, um, for every good reason, have been trying to drive down the cost of developing a home. And obviously, they have set building types and the way of doing things and supply chains. So actually trying to get people to change quickly is really difficult. Um, and what probably we're seeing more in the market is that the smaller to medium-sized builders are able to adapt to a little bit lighter of foot than the PLCs are. And they are actually probably being seen to drive the market forward. So interesting dynamics. There's a lot of good people out there wanting to do the right thing. But dare I say, it, on the whole, sometimes the system is a little bit stacked against them. Yeah, no, it, I, yeah, I could definitely relate to that. Sort of reading news stories and so on around it. Do you, do you think the UK government's done done enough to push the industry forward, or actually, given the way that you've described it, I suppose a, a different take could be the the government's actually done some quite harmful things over time to to set up policy ambitions, but then row back on them. Would you agree with that? Well, I think the real question is who's the person setting the rules and regulations? And that comes at developers in a myriad of different ways. It comes through the local authorities. It comes through public pressure. It comes through building regulations. It comes through government uh, regulation. And sometimes just a letter can cause a massive change in where the industry is going or just something the prime minister says. So I think there's one thing that we're all pretty much fixed on, and that's 2050. And I think it's time to get real and that we pin things to 2050 because that overcomes all political cycles, all other issues, and we start walking back with some really clear deadlines for what has to happen when, because only when we've got that can the industry adjust and work to it. And I think it will, like we've seen with the car industry and then changes with the car industry more recently. Guess what? The car industry were upset when they were told they had to do something, and now they've been U-turned. Now they're upset again. So I think as an industry, definitely the house building industry can respond but we need to know it's fixed and it's not going to be walked back. Yeah, and there's a bit been a bit of to and fro like that. Um, if, if I recall, it was a 2015 zero carbon homes standard initially, and then dates dates moved around, things got watered down or added to or changed. Um, so it's pretty hard, uh, I guess, from what you're saying for the industry to to react to that in a sense. It is just because of the long lead in times, but certainty helps. And I think that's definitely something we can all be working to. And and also, you know, these things are only ever a minimum, right? There's yeah. nothing that says you can't go beyond. And uh, we at Octopus are actively promoting developers to think, let's go beyond because we believe the general public are asking for it. Yeah, very good. In the spirit of that, I'd like to to just briefly touch on the and um, the community land trust project that um, I mentioned in the preamble as well, where you definitely went uh, far above and beyond uh, what was required um, and developed some some real innovation there. Uh, could you say a bit more about that, what you managed to achieve? Yes, certainly. So we'd built eight homes to the village and it was a couple of years on and we thought, well, what else can we be doing for the village? And I think sometimes innovation comes from a place of dislike or disquiet or anger. 
And actually, in this instance, it was like, we really hate filling up our oil tanks. We hate the oil deliveries. We hate the fact the price changes all the time. And that's a pretty strong motivator. So there was a motivator on price. There was a motivator for those in fuel poverty in our village. And actually, doing the right thing seemed get us off oil. And it seems easy now, but it has been a five and a half, six year program. But effectively, we decided that we were going to look to um, other countries and we looked to Scandinavia and thought, you know what, a district scheme for the village, high temperature network and take us off oil has to be the future for our rural village. And that's what we've done. 108 boreholes go 200 meters deep, uh, industrial air source and a private wire to a solar farm. And whilst we're the first in the country, um, we don't want to be the last. We believe this is an amazing uh, technology and solution for especially rural communities who are on oil and have very few other choices about how they can retrofit their historic homes. Absolutely. Yeah. And as you say, um, from what I hear, this was a, a first of a kind in a sense in the UK of retrofitting in a rural context, a, a whole a whole settlement with the low carbon um, solution there. So, uh, yeah. Congratulations on on the scheme, and I'm sure there's lots of lots of lessons that you could bring um, to your new role at Octopus to to take that to a whole uh, the whole industry in in a sense. I want to bring um, bring you in, Caroline, as well. Um, so I, I suppose very much to bring a top down perspective. Um, so in the work that you did from the for the National Infrastructure Commission, you considered lots of lots of different op- options for decarbonising heat and and the system challenges. I wonder if you could say a bit more about that. So what are the options available to us to decarbonize our heating systems? Thanks, Richard. Yeah, like you said, in the uh, in the project, we took a look at the sort of top-down analysis of decarbonizing heating as well as the bottom-up. And the bottom-up really helped us get into the different technologies specifically and how applicable they are to the building stocks in the UK. Um, and so in terms of the options that we have available for decarbonization, it's uh, quite easy to think of it in terms of um, gaseous uh, systems, so hydrogen um, and decarbonizing heating by replacing natural gas burning systems with hydrogen. Um, then we've got the electricity uh, decarbonization. So the standard uh, electrical one is an electric resistive heater or electric resistance heating, um, as well as our heat pumps. So that's ground source and air source heat pumps. Um, And then finally, we also have heat networks, uh, which is when heat is supplied from a central source to a cluster of buildings. And uh, in addition to that, we have a combination of one or two or three of the of the various ones that I've mentioned there. When you look at those different options, then, Caroline, which um, which can we say is maybe not best, but from a system perspective, which is uh, which is the cheapest for the system to accommodate overall? So it really depends what aspect of the system you're optimizing for, because all of them have advantages and disadvantages. Um, For example, electric resistive heating has quite a low capex and is easier to install. Um, It's less likely to break down, but it has uh, quite a low efficiency in comparison to the other technologies, meaning that on a system level, it results in really high demand and particularly high peak demand um, for for the power system that is specifically. Uh, air source heat pumps and ground source heat pumps have incredibly good efficiencies, but only good efficiencies in very well insulated houses. Um, additionally, they have quite a high capex of installation and they often require um, uh, sufficient space for installation as well. Um, heat networks are uh, a, a fantastic way to sort of decarbonize an area, but that's 
requires sort of installation and coordination between a number of parties and can be quite extensive and complex to build. And hydrogen, of course, always an interesting one to touch on. I know it's a bit more controversial. Um, the advantages of it is that it's uh, reliable and operates in the way that we're familiar with uh, in terms of like gas boilers and making it possibly easier to install. However, of course, the price of hydrogen is a little bit more uncertain going forward. And um, the effects of that on the wider system uh, also bring a lot into question. Where is that hydrogen coming from? If you're making it some electricity to then convert it to hydrogen to then burn in a house, actually the overall impact on the power system is, is quite significant as well. Um, so it, it, yeah, it depends what you're optimizing for. I think ground source heat pumps efficiency-wise absolutely goes without saying that's a that's a, a clear winner. Um, in terms of ease, some very, very old uh, buildings or more um, energy inefficient buildings will require uh, electric combi boilers in that sense. Um, and hydrogen for heating will be uh, beneficial in some areas if they're converted to hydrogen earlier on in um, our road to net zero. And that's something that some of our analysis has shown as well. So it seems like what you're saying, um, there's no sort of silver bullet here. I mean, I, I remember from research I did on how to decarbonize heating some years ago, that was uh, that seemed to be the conclusion that there's no, no easy solutions here that are going to work for every housing type. Um, and all of the solutions you're mentioning sort of have significant costs and, and some uh, some challenges um, along the way. If if we had to be very reductionist and boil it down to a single metric of total system cost and think about what's the the cheaper what's the cheaper version in terms of mix of electrical and hydrogen heating, where, where does that land, Caroline? In your opinion, um, if we're to completely boil it down, I think you want to rely on a system that has as many places as possible converted to uh, ground and air source heat pumps. Um, Obviously, that's not an applicable technology to every uh, building architecture archetype, um, but as many as possible, definitely. And then the remaining, I think, sort of from the analysis that we've done alongside the NIC, but also from other analysis in the heating system, you're looking at about 10 to 30 percent hydrogen as well for those other more difficult to decarbonize buildings. Um, and the reason I say that is electric resistive heating in the modeling that we've done really does increase peaking demand requirements in the power sector. Now, hydrogen for heating, of course, increases total demand because of the round-trip efficiency of having to create that hydrogen. But that total demand can be met through a range of renewables and flexible technologies. Um, peaking demand, increasing peaking demand, puts a lot of strain on the system in very, very tight periods. And so ultimately, it means that we might rely more heavily on gas burning peaking technologies in the power system in order to uh, implement that electric resistive heating, which has the negative effect of increasing emissions at the end of the day. So definitely air source heat pumps would be uh, uh, the one I would recommend or the, the one that the analysis points towards. Um, and in addition to that, some areas would need hydrogen as well. And so the another key thing I'd like to highlight is... Um, when doing this analysis, a key barrier is the lack of data. So understanding the full makeup of the building stock in GB um, is quite difficult. So really answering that question um, requires a significant amount more data to be collected to help us really crack that one open. 
Yeah, and particularly to kind of understand which technologies are, are suitable in which building types. So, Emma, it, I mean, we've had the sort of top-down view there from Caroline on uh, on what is is likely to work from a system perspective. It seems to point towards and heat pumps uh, solutions in in the main, but maybe not in every building type. Um, thinking about your role at Octopus, where I mean, Octopus is kind of very well known for coming up with very uh, compelling, innovative customer propositions. I wonder how you translate that sort of top-down system-wide type of perspective into thinking about what you want to do and sell to your customers? So for us, the amazing thing is that we have amazing access to customers and all of that data and regular interactions with them. And actually, people like telling us what they think as well. So we feel that we're ahead of the game and can see trends coming down the line quite swiftly. So, you know, from where we were, air source heat pumps, and delighted Caroline highlighted this, we could see this was going to be something that our customers really wanted. And so we started installing um, other manufacturers' heat pumps, and we're rolling those out now together with solar. But we've actually invested in our own design of air source heat pump, knowing full well that we had to hit two things. Number one, we had to make it as good as a gas boiler in terms of heat, but we also had to make it as cheap as a ha- as a gas build a boiler to install and that's exactly what we've been working to and we have just launched the cozy six which is a high temperature heat pump but we are yet to roll it out we're just now in the manufacturing stages to really roll that out and ramp it up next year because that's what our customers want and we've gone when i started here at octopus like five months ago we've gone from having sort of one two week lead in time to maybe up to five or six week lead in time now for air source heat pump the general public and now demanding heat heat pumps and we're there to try and serve that and meet that demand but they're also asking us for solar and something that uh, Caroline didn't touch on but we're very keen on is batteries so yes if you're having solar installed let's look at batteries as well let's think about batteries with air source heat pumps because actually the ability to flex to avoid those peak points is actually where we see our role being in order that we can smooth out the grid not only do we generate our own green energy as well, but we can help people actually live comfortably in their homes and avoid these huge, huge charges when they really need to turn the power on, cook the dinner, put their heating on, etc. So you're sort of thinking about it as a rather than think about heat in isolation in the home. It's more thinking about a whole integrated solution of production solar in the home. Maybe you've got the battery or an EV on the driveway as well, but it's thinking about that all in the round. Yeah, I mean, we've taken a very macro problem and made it super micro. So actually, homes should generate their own power and they should also be able to store. So they're either energy generators or energy storage systems, because actually that's the only way we're going to crack this nut, because individual homes are a lot easier to sort out than actually trying to do some of these bigger solutions. And we've got a lot of we've got a lot of properties out there. We've got huge commercial estates out there. We've got big areas of land and we actually should be looking at the buildings first. So help the buildings help themselves in order to help those people inside who live and work inside those buildings. Absolutely. So I wonder about the technology side of this. And so you you say as Octopus, you're investing in the technology um, and you're bringing that to market. But my my question would have been, is the technology ready? Is it ready for mass rollout um, in in the way that um, we need? So you kind of sound like my mum. Uh, my mum is uh, my mum is seventy eight. Uh, sorry, mum. Uh, but anyhow, it's very easy to say: Is this the right technology now? Should we wait a little bit longer? Should we do something else? Right. Um, and I think at every stage that is an argument for people. However, 
we know that this technology is here now and we know that people want it. And we also know it will get better over time and prices will come down and it will become more efficient and it will become the norm. You take flat screen tellies. They were the thing of footballers, you know, only sort of 10, 15 years ago. And now the majority of people buying a new telly is buying a flat screen telly. And that's really where we've got to get air source heat pumps to, solar to. All of these things should just be considered normal. You shouldn't doubt whether you have it now or not. You just get it now. And then you look forward to in 20 years time getting the version. 15.2 just like you do with a phone so people you know you can make a decision do you upgrade at year 18 because it's a nice color or a nice make or do you you know wait until the lifespan of your technology runs out and I think it's hard to make air source heat pump sexy I realize that but actually we're trying really hard to make it a thing that becomes something that is desirable in your neighborhood and other people will lust after your air source heat pump too and therefore think to change their ways as well. So, you know, sorry to give you an analogy like my mum, but I think we can all stand on the fence and wait for this stuff, but you have to make a leap and that's our job is to encourage people to take that leap. No, Emma, it's a fair it's a fair chance and I don't take it personally. I've, I've adopted the EV and the solar, but don't yet myself have a heat pump. So, but I found your... Your, your speech very compelling. Uh, so maybe I should rethink uh, even for myself. Um, do you, in a sense, the technology is ready. Um, you're talking about a price point or you, you're talking about price parity for the um, for the installation, including the equipment. Is that where you've got to now or is that where you aspire to get to? So we've got there close involving what was the £5,000 grant. And the way we got there was thinking of it like changing the tyres on a Formula One car. You know, back in the day, that probably took 10 to 15 minutes. And now they're doing it in, you know, under five seconds. And so we spend a lot of time in our uh, warehouse thinking about how we pick the products, how we get everything together, how we load it onto a crate, how we distribute that around the country. So when the engineers are ready to install Everything comes off the crate in the order in which they're installing. They don't need to pop down to a um, warehouse to pick up a widget or a screwdriver or something that's been missed. It's all there, so no time is lost. And also then in terms of manufacture, production, supply chain, just bringing all the costs down. And there may be little costs at each stage or little time savings at each stage, but that brings it down. And so now with the increased grant towards replacing boilers with air source heat pump, we know that nearly for every home we're going to do that in, we can do that for free. But we acknowledge, we totally acknowledge there is subsidy towards that at the moment, but therefore there should be no barriers to anybody thinking, I'm not going to get another gas boiler this time round, I'm going for the air source heat pump. Okay, so yeah, one thing to get on cost parity for the consumer with the with the subsidy, and I suppose that then sets the throws the gauntlet down to get the cost further down in, into the future as the industry scales up. Can the industry scale up fast enough? Though, so I, I don't know the precise numbers, but presumably we replace, um, uh, well, from memory, around two million boilers a year. Um, we're doing tens of thousands of heat pumps in the UK, even across Europe. It's, it's maybe in the hundreds, low hundreds of thousands of heat pumps being uh, installed per year. Can that industry scale up fast enough, in your opinion? So there's two things, scale and speed. And nearly always when your boiler breaks, it's in the middle of winter, right? And you need somebody out in two days' time to come and install something. The problem we've got is we've got a very good historic gas boiler replacement system out there. So when you ring up 
they'll be out within 48 hours and you're delighted and your heat's back on again. Where we've got to be is that at the same point with air source heat pumps, and we're not there yet. We've talked about the waiting list for people. We cannot respond to those emergency swap overs, and that's where we're going to have to get to. So twofold, we need more um, products, air source heat pumps, but I think the market is responding to that. But more importantly, we need to be training up more people to actually install them. And possibly they're doing gas if people want gas, but they're also doing air source heat pumps as well. And the more engineers we have who are trained in air source heat pumps, the better the industry will be. And we're investing heavily in that. We've got a training centre in Slough where we can train over a thousand people a year to actually do air source heat pump installs and solar installs. So we know this is the future. We want to employ people ourselves, but just employing our own people is not the answer to mass rollout across the UK. Yeah, absolutely. But one other exciting proposition I've heard of from from your team, your from your company is the idea of zero bills tariff, um, which sounds on face value like the the kind of thing I would like to have. Uh, how does that work? How, how does someone achieve zero bills? So, I mean, fundamentally, Octopus is a data company, right? We have this amazing database called Kraken. And through Kraken, we've learned all these different flex technologies. And we've learned that through um, charging electric vehicles at night when the energy is cheap. We have taken that technology and we've adapted it for um, brand new homes and maybe recently built homes, but let's go with the best thermally built new homes we've currently got on the market. We know that if we put a lot of solar on the roof, and we are talking a lot, potentially 18 to 25 panels of solar on the roof, so effectively covering both sides of the roof, an air source heat pump, Uh, a battery and a um, smart meter that we technically take control of your house, as we were saying earlier, and turn it either into a mini generator of power, which we sell into the grid or you can use yourselves, or we flex it and reverse it and we run the power into your battery at night and store it up whilst you're asleep, but when the grid needs help. And through that flex, we know that we can not charge you a bill for five years and literally, it's no bill to live in your home for up to two times what we expect the average home to use. So that's great. We've done that. It's an exciting proposition, but we feel like, right, that's that's that nut cracked. This should be rolled out, right? Um, things coming down the line, we want to go from five years to 10 years. So we're pushing to see if we can do that. And then come next year, your EV car will also be linked to the house as well. So you can power up your car, your car can power the house possibly you never have a bill again in that scenario. But then, as I say, that's kind of easy. We've proven that. An octopus, that's a bit boring. We don't rest on our laurels. So now it's like, can we crack the retrofit nut to zero bills? And so that's really what we're tasked. Really, as a power company, we're trying to remove all bills from domestic customers in new build and retrofit. And that's what we will strive to keep doing and won't rest until we've achieved it. Yeah, there's a... a just a hint of irony of the power company, power supply company that wants people to have uh, zero bills. But um, maybe if we, we park that one and there, I mean, it does seem like an exciting proposition. I wonder what the total sort of capital cost must be must be fairly large to do that. But um, yeah, I can see I can see how the, the maths could work. And I want to turn to um, the policy environment around this. And um, we touched on it a bit um, earlier and um, with policy changes, but that's kind of more backward looking. What I want to think more about is um, how the policy environment is fixed now um, in the UK and in, in Europe more broadly and what needs to happen to drive this. Because frankly, 
in terms of heat and buildings, we have not made enough progress um, to be anywhere near the path we need um, for the net zero targets. And maybe Carolina can bring you back in. Um, I know it was not our explicit um, remit in the work we did for the National Infrastructure Commission to make policy suggestions. Um, but in that work and from other work we've done looking at heat decarbonisation, I wonder if you could articulate what are some of the key policies that the government and regulators need to come forward with in order to enable this kind of rapid decarbonisation of, of heat and buildings that we need to see? Thanks, Richard. As you said, this was not sort of the key focus of the of the report that we've done uh, or the the modelling that we did on the on behalf of NIC. But from the extensive look into decarbonising heating and indeed decarbonising the power sector at the same time, an important aspect we don't want to forget. Um, I think it's best to look at the policy in two realms, the policy directly related to the heating sector and the policy related to the power sector that will be needed to enable that. So uh, on the heating sector specifically, um, I think Emma touched on nicely the policy around price parity and sort of getting these technologies to the point that the cost to the consumer is one and the same. It's not just the cost of the installation itself, but it's the cost of maintaining that uh, that asset as well. Um, additionally, I, I think Emma, again, touched on it really nicely, the uh, policy around supporting the skills development of the sector. So you spoke about boiler replacement and the ease of that. Um, what we've seen in our research is that non-financial factors, such as what we term hassle factors, must also be considered. So consumers are, sp are particularly put off by technologies that have significant space requirements, efficiency upgrade requirements, uh, maintenance requirements, difficulty in sort of sourcing uh, those skill sets. Um, and this is especially true for uh, archetype, um, housing infrastructure that is maybe uh, landlords and you don't directly own this house yourself. So large sort of uh, city developments um, in the UK. I think it, uh, specifically also policy around insulation is particularly important. Um, a lot of the technology would uh, require a lot more heating, a lot more draw on the power system if we didn't simultaneously update the insulation infrastructure in a huge proportion of the building stock. Uh, but zooming out, uh, the policy for the power sector itself has to be focused on as well. So if we're looking at decarbonizing heating, but of course decarbonizing uh, transport and industry as well, but focusing on heating only, what we're going to need is uh, significantly more capacity to provide the demand required, but also more flexibility in the system to provide that peaking demand if we're looking at electrifying heating and meeting those peaking demand points. So Emma touched on the batteries that might be required on the system, but other flexible technologies as well, um, such as sort of longer duration storage uh, and policy around incentivizing uh, that build out in the system so that the system is ready to electrify heating is particularly important too. Yeah. So I, just to play that back, it seems like one of the first things you're saying, Caroline, is there's still a big, in a sense, subsidy gap to be bridged and to get the, um, it, let's say if we're focusing on heat pumps, to get that technology deployed in in homes. And, and, and Emma, Emma you're, you're saying you basically agree with this. At the moment, it requires quite a significant subsidy in the order of £5,000. Um, I find it hard to imagine that the UK government would weather that for the entire building fleet. Like if you just do the math, if there's 20, 20 million 
households. There's, there's more, but it makes the maths easier. That's a hundred billion uh, um, of cost, um, and I just wonder whether obviously the cost, the capex will come down. The, the unit cost of heat pumps will come down over time, but it's whether it will come down fast enough to make that work. And um, to give a parallel, the government was not willing to fund um, electric vehicles with a lot of upfront um, capex grants for very long. They got phased out pretty quickly. So I suppose, Emma, to sort of play that one back more in your direction, do you think that we can get the costs down fast enough that if government does want to phase out capital grants, it will still be okay? It will still work? I mean, we're really trying. That's exactly where we're trying to get to, right? But um, And others in the industry are as well. You know, this, this, we are all actively trying to get to this sweet spot. But yeah. who knows what the next policy is going to be? That's the issue. You have to just go at it as quickly as you can to try and target it. The real question is, though, who pays? Because there are just so many different mechanisms that people are talking about. So you have separate funds for the housing associations to bring up their housing stock. But, you know, they've got awful problems with other things like mold and damp they're having to address as a priority, not just trying to get all their stock to EPCC. You've then got the other end of the spectrum where the majority of people who own their own home don't have a mortgage in the UK, which is a shocking statistic because, you know, when you talk to sort of peers on the whole, we, me and my friends, we all have mortgages, right? But actually, there's a huge amount of stock that doesn't have mortgages. So how do you encourage people who own their house outright to go and invest in it if you can't control them through the mortgages? And then on the whole, you have this squish middle of people who are probably working very hard, who do have a mortgage, who are now being encouraged to borrow more to do up their home in order to, to do that. So the question of who pays is really challenging. And at the moment, there is no one nice little mechanism that fits all. And I think that is really hard because at the end of the day, those that are already paying an awful lot are probably going to be the ones that get asked to pay again to sort out the housing stock. And that's not politically palatable all of the time either. So I can't see this moving forward without some form of significant government intervention, to be honest, for a very long time. Who you provide that funding to will change over time, I'm sure. But I cannot see it moving forward without help and assistance. There has yeah, to yeah. be some I mean, character. There was a brief moment when um, it was trailed in the news around the possible levy on gas bills to fund the hydrogen transition, which went down in the press pretty badly and I think um, is actually what caused quite an about face from UK government to to pursue the hydrogen option less less vigorously, um, you could say. Um, I mean, it's always been in the think tank land, which I used to be in, lots of discussion around moving uh, lots of levies off the electricity bill, possibly putting them onto the gas bill to make it fiscally neutral. But and very difficult politically to like whilst it seems great in the think tank paper it's, it's much more difficult um in reality i was always quite attracted to you mentioned mortgages emma i was always quite attracted to the idea of um using uh the mortgages system to leverage some uh, more interest and activity in in for people to upgrade their their homes um energy efficiency um on the basis that if a bank is going to lend um, a lot of money to somebody um, to buy a house and um, with a mortgage, if you could just have that little nudge through that system that says, well, why don't you buy a greener house or why don't you borrow a little bit extra and improve the fabric of the house so your bill's actually going down over time? You could you could try and make that work and actually 
doing that through the market as people do their mortgage affordability calculations to actually say, look, if you invested these a um, couple of thousand pounds in, in insulation, for example, you might actually save a material amount on your bills. That could be that there could be something there. And it's I actually find it quite surprising that the government hasn't done that kind of more market orientated um, solution which they could have done at the stroke of a pen. Uh, but yeah, I am with you for now, and I think some some level of financial upfront support probably is uh, what is required to find the the mass scale. And um, Caroline, you talked about um, the need for power system flexibility. Maybe we can dig into that um, a bit more um, as well. I'll bring, well, I'm happy for you both to to comment. Really, I suppose Emma, on your side, um, Octopus actually does a lot of experimentation around encouraging flexibility through the the agile tariff and and so on and um, so there is sort of inherent huge flexibility on the demand side that we could um harness i wonder if you maybe say a bit about how do you link that kind of narrative within octopus to the work that you do on um, decarbonization of of buildings well wow, that's a massive question <laughs> but tariffs drives consumer behavior and therefore, actually encouraging people that they can look at other tariffs and see how they can do it. And intelligent tariffs that enable you to bring more technologies on board as time goes on has to be the way forward. But actually, where we're getting smart as well as on the supply side. So, you know, we want to be generating more electricity, more green energy as a company ourselves. So, you know, we're investing in wind turbines, in solar farms, but we also think there should be benefit to those who live around them who are also our consumers. So we have things like the fan club where people actually get to benefit from the green electrons being made in their part of the world and they can see that lifetime. So I think I think we can do the public a huge disservice. There are lots of people who are interested in seeing what's happening with their home lifetime. So we have the Octopus Mini that gives you the data every 60 seconds or every 30 seconds, I believe, sorry. So that you can see your home and what it's doing and turn stuff off like your vampire devices. But then you can join bigger schemes and you can see generation as well every half an hour. And I think actually engaging with customers and showing them what they can do and how they can flex and be more agile and be more intelligent about how they run their home. I genuinely think that that that, that will improve the whole sector. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I think we're there actively trying to inform, educate and provide ways for our customers to actually get actively involved, both in changing their demand, but also looking at how we make supply of, of new green electricity. Yeah, it does seem like um, with some of the recent kind of demand turned down and um, pilot projects and so on, there has actually seen quite a lot of customer uptake um, in those but through Octopus customers and, and others. And Caroline, I suppose one very difficult question for you, which we could probably spend a long time talking about, but maybe if we can think of a, a shorter way to summarize. So to me, one of the most difficult problems, the almost elephant in the room for this whole topic is how do you, from a system design perspective, how do you deal with um, a very cold winter's day, which is windless and, and has a very little solar generation. So what they call in German, the Kalte Dunkelflaute, which is one of my favorite words. And um, how do we deal with that in a world where we have pushed very hard in the direction of electrical heating, whether it's efficient heat pumps or less efficient resistive heating, we're making it even harder. But the system is 
very ele um, electrical heat dependent. And I've just said it's a very cold day, so demand is high, and and we've got very little wind and solar in my Kaltadunkel flouter example. How do we deal with that scenario from a system perspective? Um, it's a great question, um, and I, I don't think it's uh, unreasonable either, because in every year we have many cold snaps, and if we're looking at a system 10, 20 years down the line where everything is, or a large portion of it is electrified, um, that will become more important. If we've developed a power system that's very reliant on intermittent renewable generation and uh, storage, then that does become quite challenging because what you're missing there is a dispatchable generating technology that you can turn on to sort of meet this very, very tight period for one, two, five, 10 days, however long it lasts. Um, and on a system level, I think the technologies that we have to ensure that we have on the system to, to um, make sure that supply meets demand will be um, low carbon dispatchable thermal generation in the form of hydrogen peakers, possibly, or hydrogen CCGTs, um, biomass uh, CCGTs, uh, possibly with carbon capture and storage, another controversial one to throw in there. Um, but I think, as Emma said, the, uh, the demand side response can also contribute there if we're looking at... Um, heating storage on a, a more granular level um, across the country, you could sort of dissipate those peaks a little bit as well. Um, so that's definitely an element that shouldn't be ignored. Um, and if we're looking at building out a huge amount of renewables as well, uh, some of those will be able to sort of uh, meet some of that supply shortage as well. Um, it, it really is about ensuring that you've got the right mechanisms in your system to incentivize those dispatchable thermal technologies to be online in case something like this happens. Yeah. So in a, in a sense, or to play back, um, we need the diversity of solutions, both on the demand and the supply side. And um, so, yes, we absolutely harness the demand flexibility, although that's probably helping us over hours rather than days or weeks. Um, your comment on hydrogen is interesting. So rather than in these systems, we're talking about high power focus heating um, systems. We're not using hydrogen for heating, but what we may use hydrogen for is essentially as a seasonal or inter-annual store um, so that we can store up large volumes of hydrogen and use that at the, the tightest um, periods only, um, which might be a better a better use of that resource. Okay, we're, we're coming towards the end, um, and I had one final question um, for you both. Um, so to me, there's still a huge policy gap here. Um, the question to you is, if you're in charge for a day, so you could bring forward in that day one policy measure um, to encourage decarbonization of homes and buildings, what would that be? Emma? So I'd relax uh, planning legislation. Uh, I'd relax planning legislation for air source heat pumps so they can go within a metre of your neighbour's boundary. I'd also relax uh, the view on terms of rooftops. And I also think we should, um, and it's not often talked about, but for historic buildings, listing buildings that don't have EPCs or any requirements, I think a little bit more of a pragmatic approach to how we deal with some of our more heritage assets. So for me, a, a positive view towards planning and for new developers who are building to zero bills they'd get the ability to have a fast track through the very clogged up planning system so that would be my request is to sort out planning caroline 
from my perspective, as a sometimes very cold foreigner, it would be around insulation. Um, uh, I'm not entirely sure the exact specifics, but I know, for example, listed buildings, it's difficult to uh, replace the windows uh, at a affordable cost. Um, so it would definitely be around the sort of insulation of uh, historic buildings and of the new builds, which I think is uh, far more regulated already. Um, the reason I say that is that we've spoken a lot about heat pumps and the importance, uh, the, the important role that they'll play, but their efficiency can only really be maximized in a uh, insulated building. Otherwise, it's pretty much the same as an electric resistive heater. So we want to avoid that eventuality by by focusing on those drafty gaps. Fantastic. Well, thank you both um, for joining me. Thanks for sharing your views. And Emma, it's been really fascinating to uh, to hear what's happening at the coalface of making this happen in the industry and with consumers. And Caroline, to get that top-down system-wide perspective. Um, if you've been listening and you were interested in that analysis, as I said, it has been made publicly available through the National Infrastructure Commission here in the UK. And so do have a look at the, the series of reports um, that Aurora has put together. Thank you both. Thanks very much, Richard. Thanks very much, Caroline, and love and power to you all. Many thanks, Richard, and uh, lovely hearing your views, Emma. That was Richard Howard, Aurora's Global Research Director, talking to Emma Fletcher, Octopus Energy's Low Carbon Homes Director, and Caroline Still, Senior Associate at Aurora's UK and Ireland Advisory Team. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.